Welcome to The Indigenous Approach, a podcast where we examine the role of the nation's premier partnered irregular warfare force across the competition continuum, from cooperation to conflict and everything in between. Welcome to another episode of the Command Team Corner. I'm Sergeant First Class Jacob Raymond, the Public Affairs NCOIC for First Special Forces Command. And I have the pleasure of sitting down with our Deputy Commanding General of Support, Brigadier General Derek Lipson. Good morning, sir. How are you today? I am well. Good morning. It's great to finally have you on one of our podcast episodes to get to know a little bit more about who is Brigadier General Derek Lipson. Well, thank you. So you have been a Green Beret for uh, about 28 years now. Um, what has that ride been like for you? Amazing would be the, the first word that comes to mind. The initial reason was just the challenge. And I was in the National Guard in an Airborne Ranger slot, mechanized infantry, second of the 134th Infantry in Nebraska. And I was interested in going to ranger school. And they said, well, guard folks never pass the PT test, so we're not going to send you. I still don't know if they didn't think I personally couldn't pass the PT test <laughs> or if if just no guard folks ever did pass it. Anyway, that led me to complaining about it and someone telling me, well, if you want to go to schools, go SF. So at that point, I this is 1993. I've been a police officer for a couple of years. Before that, I was a newspaper reporter, journalism major at Midland Lutheran College. So communications background there. Decided interviewing people for the police department was better than interviewing them for the newspaper. That's what led me over there. But packed up my truck, drove to Florida and got prepared for selection and then was then selected. So really the challenge that, that drove me there in so finished the Q course in 94 and then went to language school, then went to free fall school and had the time of my life on a military free fall ODA for several years. Went back to the police department for about a year, didn't like that anymore and decided to start my own internet consulting company with my mother-in-law. And around 99, 2000 in that time frame. Uh, we were living in Nebraska. I was flying to Florida for drills uh, once or twice a month, doing J sets in the summer, fall. Those were great, but I was finding that my civilian job was suffering as well as the military job. And I made an appointment on September 15th, 2001 to turn my gear in and get out of the military. Something happened a few days before that, and when you're the only captain in the battalion with a top-secret clearance, you tend to f find work after 9-11 pretty quickly. So that, so I never thought I would you know, make it a career, never thought I'd go beyond captain, even at one point was contemplating warrant officer. But at this point, uh, the opportunity, the people to work with, the things we've, we've done, I sometimes on a flight, people will ask me, what do I do? And if I am comfortable sharing with them, sometimes I'm not, but I'll tell them I'm in the military. One lady once said, well, I'm sorry. And I asked her, why are you sorry that I'm in the military? She said, well, you must have to do awful things. And I thought for a few minutes, I'm like, well, 
And she looked at me funny and said, well, do you enjoy it? And I said, well, let me think about that. So it's been a long time since I've enjoyed it, but I still find it rewarding. And what I mean by that is if I never have to sit another palm or a, a you know, a budget meeting, I will be <laughs> happy. Uh, what I do find rewarding now, though, is the opportunity to create time, space, and resources for those people we work with and that work for the command so that they can do what they need to do so that the teams can be successful, whether that's a CAD A, TPT, or an ODA, because in the end, without the resources, uh, they can't do what they need to do. And we just need to create that for them in time and space. Yeah. And as you said, everyone really does start out on a small team, especially in um, special operations, whether it's an ODA, a PSYOP detachment, or even a civil affairs team. When you were as a young ODA team leader, what really stuck with you and kind of shaped who you are today? As a newly commissioned officer, I was on top of the world. I thought I knew everything. I'd read all the manuals and I was, or I learned quickly that the NCOs are where the experience is at and the standards that they upheld, at least the ones that I had contact with initially were amazing. And just the leadership that they demonstrated that I was able to learn from and their willingness to let me make mistakes, but help me learn from them. Uh, small teams, smart people. You know, once I got to the ODA, I was never been happier. With that, since everything that you learn as a young officer helps progressively get you further and further up the chain, you were able to come over to 1st Special Forces Command as the Deputy Commanding General Support in February. Has anything about the command surprised you, and where do you see the command going? What surprised me, well, it didn't surprise me as much as it was just reinforced, but the amazing work of the amazing professionals that make up First Special Forces Command, largest division in the Army, the breadth of the missions, the locations. We provide senior leaders options with our roughly 3,500 soldiers in 70 countries on any given day. And without that presence forward and the expertise that they bring in their specific, you know, whether it's influence, governance, or special operations, the the level of options that they bring to senior leaders, whether that's a country team or military leaders, is just inspiring. And you know it's there to use the trite cliche of an iceberg. You, know, you only see that, that top portion. But the problem-solving capacity at the lowest level of our formation is the envy of the world. And anything we can do to reinforce that uh, – is is just essential the command where do i see it going i think we will continue to employ cross-functional teams based on the needs of that location and the mission requirements and i think that that is something we should safeguard safeguard at all all costs we can't replace our people and where we modernize, where we innovate is where our people are at. So safeguarding our force structure and, and not relying too heavily upon technological solutions to people problems. We need 
technological assistance to people problems, whether that's data or drones or unmanned robotics without the people, which is our highest valued item, uh, none of that's possible. Well, that is a really interesting way to look at the future for where we're going as like, yeah, we have all these missions, we have everything else, but the biggest thing that we could do moving forward is focus on the technology to assist the teams in making everything happen instead of using the technology to solve the problems. Definitely. Data-informed decisions, not data-driven decisions. There's opportunities to remove the the human piece from some things with AI, but it can't replace it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, humans are more important than hardware has been driven into my head for over the last 12 years. So The soft truths are just that. When you are prepping for your day or your week or your upcoming month of constant travel, um, what have you been listening to, reading, or watch that um, really you think everyone within the command should check out or has really influenced how you are going after the business for First Special Forces Command? I don't have a required reading list, but if I did, the first entry would be a book by... uh, I forget his first name, but his last name is Jones. It's called The Eye Test, A Case for Human Creativity in an Age of Analytics. And as we just discussed, the there's a desire. I call it the universal algorithm. And maybe God knows what this universal algorithm is, but from if you want to go back to creation or the Big Bang to today, there is a physical formula that can explain everything. We will never know all the variables. So what this book points out is the argument that you can have an algorithm to predict the future is flawed. All the algorithms and all of our data analytics, what they give us is how we got to where we were in the past. You don't have all of the variables for the equations going forward, because if we did, we would trust weather forecasting. We would know that there's going to be a tornado at this place at this moment in time. Are we getting better on our analytics and understanding those things? Certainly, as we move forward. But the trap is thinking that strict analytics will predict the future. Again, if we knew that, then we'd never have a stock market crash and everyone's retirement accounts would just keep going up. And we know that doesn't happen. And often we miss looking forward thinking we have the the full algorithm and we don't. So that's worth a read, I think. And looking at it from that perspective, I mean, data analytics and everything, how could someone even at the team level take something from that book and apply it to what they are getting after? I think it goes back to the desire to replace human actions with AI or mechanical ones. There are solutions, but we should never be surprised when complex things don't turn out the way we expect them to. When you take diverse teams that build up RSOF teams that deploy forward into areas of the world where we know of the culture, but we may not be complete experts, the risk of thinking we have the right answer and right solution without accounting for the human condition and the different backgrounds of the people there. If we talk in terms of the adult learning model, 
mm-hmm. people's experience, what they've done in life changes how they look at a problem set. So a solution in Syria is different than a solution in Uganda, which is different than a solution in Korea. I think we lead the army. We are the experts in that cultural nuance and understanding that, but we can always be better at applying it. And so I think when we look at trying to use data to inform our decisions, as long as they're just informing and they're not driving the decisions, that's that's the sweet spot that we're looking for. Thanks, sir. And now, is there anything you would like to tell the greater community of the Indigenous Approach podcast um, before we get off of here today? Yes, I will give you my four plus one. The four things leaders do, and then the, the plus one thing to keep in mind as you do those things. First, allocate resources. There's never enough radios for the number of people who need a radio. How do you do that? Well, it's based on commander's guidance. So guidance gives us left and right limits, and it enables us to make informed decisions about where we apply the resources we have. The third thing is we report to hire, and reporting to hire creates freedom of maneuver for subordinates. If I know what you're trying to accomplish, and I tell my boss what you're trying to accomplish within those first two things, the resources allocated and the guidance, that's freedom of maneuver. Bosses, don't, if they know what you're doing, they don't ask you what you're doing. They ask, how can I help you do that? And then the fourth thing is, and I sometimes use more colorful language than this, but I won't today, keep higher out of your business. So again, that freedom of maneuver. If if we are online on the first three, with, have the right resources to do the right mission within the guidance, with reporting to hire, hire will stay out of your business and you can go execute the mission. If those are all aligned, if we're honest with each other, telling each other what we're doing on a day-to-day basis, monthly, hourly, how, however long that reporting needs to be, then I think we can be successful. The plus one, if anyone has ever been stationed at Fort Bliss, you could, in a three-year PCS assignment, you and your family never break the gate. There's a Buffalo Wild Wings. There's a Under Armour store. There's a commissary, there's a PX, there's a Denny's, there's gyms, everything you need. And that is amazing that that we are able to provide those resources to families. However, what that does is we run the risk of isolating us from the greater community that we serve. When I was a police officer, my first training officer gave me some advice. He said, you will, and I'll tie this back to the U.S. Army in a second, you will go through several phases as a police officer. First is criminals are bad, but people are okay. Cops are okay and I'm okay. Then you get to criminals are bad, people are bad, cops are okay, I'm okay. Then you get to even cops are bad, but I'm okay. And then you find yourself hanging from a rope in your backyard. The point of that and what he made sure I understood If you only spend your time as a police officer hanging out and your friends or other police officers, emergency room workers, doctors, nurses, and fire department, rescue squad folks, the piece of the world you see is not very pretty. That said, do everything. If you find yourself approaching that point where you find everything around you is toxic and the people you don't trust or you have concerns about 
your own mental health or your well-being, there are resources out there. And don't let yourself get to the point where you've so self-isolated what you have done and what you've been asked to do that you don't seek help. Uh, so I hope that in saying that, it informs people that there are opportunities and there's a chance to engage and don't let yourself get that far down that path. So when we look at what our country has asked us to do for the last 20 odd years, some of it hasn't been very pretty. And if we isolate ourselves only with other people in uniform, we will eventually lose touch with the nation we serve. Less than 1% serve, I'm okay with that number. Uh, I don't want 24 million privates to worry about in the in the <laughs> army. I'm all about universal service. Let's let's figure that out. Let's put hey, you have to you have to pick a job. Just do it for 2 years. I don't care what job it is. As long as it's more than 150 miles from where you graduated from high school so that you meet other people. The the point of all this is maintain friendships with people that don't do what you do. The 1% of the army that are the 1% of the population that serves less than 15% of this country's population knows that 1%. That's the scary number because the other 85% have no idea what life in uniform and service means to us. And so we have to communicate that out. And that's reconnecting with friends from grade school, high school, having friends at church who don't do the same thing you do, friends from college. So maintain, cherish those relationships. Obviously, we care about people in uniform and we serve because we want to serve with each other and that camaraderie can't be replaced. But there's a greater opportunity to share that camaraderie with the rest of the nation that needs to better understand why we serve and what service actually means. So that's the plus one to the four things leaders do. Definitely appreciate your time um, today, sir. And we look forward to having you on further episodes of the podcast. I look forward to it as well. Thanks for the opportunity. Dale Presley-Bear. This has been The Indigenous Approach. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on social media. And if you have suggestions for topics or guests, send us a message. Thank you for listening.